Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Maya Angelou once said, In all the world, there is no heart for me like yours. In all the world, there is no love for you like mine. That belief is central to a new young adult novel by Shana Miles. Later in the program, the Atlanta author talks with producer Summer Evans about her debut book, For All Time, with its story of young love and celebration of black joy. Plus, speaking of the arts, our ongoing series of artists in their own words, Today, featuring metal artist Corinna Sephora. First, a fantasy, a musical, a place where dreams come true. That's Xanadu. The Broadway hit musical is playing at Outfront Theatre Company, produced in partnership with Georgia State University. Paul Conroy is the founder and artistic director of Outfront Theater. He joins us now via Zoom with Susan Reed, film, media, and theater professor at GSU. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you. Glad to be here. Paul, this is the first full-scale production to be performed at Outfront Theater since February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. Why did you select this show to reopen? It's funny, a lot of people have um, asked me that question, and the answer I give everyone is because I think this is a silly, funny, splashy, campy show. And I think that's what all of us need right now. I think we need a couple of hours of escapism and we just need to sit back and smile and laugh. Hmm. For those who are not familiar with the 1980 film or the 2007 Broadway version, can you give us a synopsis? I can certainly try. I know anyone who has seen the 1980 movie version might say that a synopsis is a little tricky to give, but I will do my best. So a young (laughs) artist named Sonny is creating art on the Santa Monica Boulevard. And he is visited by an ancient Greek muse named Kira. And the muses, of course, are the beings that inspire artists to create great work. And throughout the course of the story, they end up falling in love, which is forbidden for muses to do and along the way they are together searching for what the true meaning of Xanadu is and of course Xanadu is a state of mind it's a mythical place it's a different dimension of being and happiness and luckily at the end of both the movie and the musical we achieve Xanadu and everything works out happy for everyone at the end. Of course. (laughs) Now, the movie barely made 
its money back at the box office and had negative reviews, though now it's a cult classic, as you said. When it was adapted for the stage in 2007, it was a Broadway hit nominated for several Tonys and won some other awards. Why do you think the stage version was better received? I think there are two reasons. I think that the authors, Douglas Carter Bean, who reworked the book of the movie, he really had the plot make sense. So there are characters and situations in the stage show that do not appear in the movie. But I think that the the stage musical also is aware of itself and knows that it's making fun of itself and making fun of the movie and making fun of the genre of musical theater. And so it's just much more aware. And then the audience is in on the joke, whereas the movie, I mean, was a huge, big budget movie that they thought was going to be a follow-up to Grease. It was actually Gene Kelly's last on-screen appearance that he ever made. And the movie was so poorly received, like you said, that it was the inspiration to start the Razzie Awards. (laughs) And it was the very first Razzie Award winner for worst movie. Um, in 1980. Oh, poor Gene Kelly. (laughs) Although I have to say he was wonderful on screen. Was that really Olivia Newton-John dancing with him? Do either of you know? I think that it was. I've never seen or heard anything to say that it wasn't. That was kind of her heyday. This would have been three or four years after Grease and right before she really became the mega pop star in the 80s that she became. Well, she really can dance and held her own with him on screen. Susan, this may be more for you. Would you tell us about the partnership between Georgia State and Outfront? How did it come about? Absolutely. So this is actually the second co-production that we have done together. Our first one was by the skin of our chin 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 pre-pandemic in March of 2020. Yes, it was February, March. We we closed right at the beginning of March, our production here at GSU, I think about a week before everything shut down. So that was a straight play called Bull in a China Shop. And that had worked much the same way that we have done Xanadu, where there is a professional cast that is performing at Outfront Theater. And then there's a GSU cast that is there during the entire process and understudies with the as professionals. And then we do a brief run after that with just the GSU cast and allow the professionals uh, to be finished with that part of the creative process. So that's, that's sort of how it's set up to work. And will the GSU cast perform at Outfront Theater? It will. For our last co-pro, they did not. We actually moved the entire set over here to GSU, but we actually are having some technical upgrades to our space here at Georgia State. And so the timing on this worked out perfectly. We are not going to be moving the set at all. The students will actually perform at Outfront Theater for that last weekend of the run. So I have to ask, will performers be in roller skates? Of course, absolutely. Every, <laughs> everyone in both casts will be roller skating. Our second rehearsal, everyone was skating for four and a half hours, learning how to fall properly. And some of both the professional cast and the student cast, some of them had never put roller skates on before that rehearsal. And now they're all almost old pros at it. My goodness. So what can you tell us about the choreography? The choreography is, I mean, I'm not performing it, luckily, because it's very challenging. Even the choreography that's not in roller skates, it's, you know, it's like I mentioned before, it's very boisterous. It's very energetic because it's all electric light orchestra or Olivia Newton-John music. So it's all pop music, not traditional Broadway. And I think the choreography really reflects that. And it's it's been great for both the professionals and the student cast. One cast will get up and do the choreography and then get to sit down and watch the other cast do the choreography. And so they're all really working hand in hand and in tandem to correct things and help each other out along the way. 
If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Paul Conroy and Susan Reed about Outfront Theatre Company's production of the musical Xanadu. Susan, how are you working with the GSU students to prepare for this stage? I've really probably worked more as a producer on this, functioning as a producer. Paul has been so generous with this entire process. I sat in during the callbacks and that sort of auditioning portion of it. I was there uh, on the first day of official rehearsal where both the cast came together and met each other, which was such a sort of fabulous pinch me moment of these students having this wonderful opportunity here to work with professionals and to work in this professional environment. So I I was there for that. And then aside from that, it's really been just sort of jumping in when needed, when there are questions and concerns that come up. But Paul does such a great job because he already works as a faculty member for us at Georgia State. It's, again, very much a perfect situation here to have him coming in. He sort of knows some of the students as a result of his teaching and knows the environment here at Georgia State. And so that makes things, I think, run so much more smoothly in terms of the setup for the The Outfront Theatre Company cast is performing now through November 6th. The Georgia State University cast will perform from November 10th through 14th. Aside from the cast, are there other differences in the production? No, because the students have really, they serve as understudies for the professional cast. We really want to make sure, especially where we're still living with COVID, that we had that safety net. Everyone who's in the performance and working on the performance is vaccinated. And we are now requiring testing for the performers as well, because they're performing without masks. But when I was talking to Susan and we were setting up this idea, we said, We really need the students to be ready to go on at any moment because if someone tests positive for COVID in the professional cast, then they obviously can't perform and they would have to quarantine. And I was speaking with the professionals as well, and they've all said they're completely available and willing that final weekend if they need to perform with the students because they've all just bonded so closely. It's it's two casts, but it's one company. What great collaboration. Yeah. It is. And one other quick thing, Lois, we have a bunch of students that are working uh, backstage as well. So it's not just GSU students that are on stage. We have students that are helping with wardrobe, that are working with props, that are assistant stage managers as well. Has this production been adapted to fit this stage at Outfront Theater, Paul. I could imagine in the original, actors were skating out into the audience. So they're not skating out into the audience, but we do have ramps. And the first day they were installed, everyone kind of looked at me and shook, shook their heads and said, I don't know about this. But now they're all zooming down them and skating up them like it's like it's second nature, even going off stage, there were no steps. It's all ramps to get up on stage. We do have a little bit of interaction with the audience, but we, we haven't done any huge retrofitting. There's no, there's no skating directly into the audience. But the ramps, that's no small task there. It is not. And let me tell you, it is more geometry than I was willing to tackle. So we brought in some carpenters who work for the film and TV industry, and they were absolutely amazing. And safety was the number one priority. And I, I really could not be happier with how the set worked out. And now it's it's almost like its own cast member to the way that they're so comfortable with it on stage. Let's talk about the music. We said the book was written by Douglas Carter Bean, the music and lyrics by Jeff Lynne and John Farrer. What can you tell us about Farrer's song, Have You Never Been Mellow? (laughs) So that's a song that's not in the original movie. And of course, it was a huge hit for Olivia Newton-John in the 1970s. It's the second to last song 
It takes place on Mount Olympus and the goddesses and some mythological creatures are singing it to the god Zeus because he's so upset that Kira has fallen in love with Sunny and he wants to banish her in the netherworld. And so they just say to Zeus, have you never been mellow? There was a time when I was in a hurry as you are. By the end of the song, Zeus is pretty mellow. But so many of the songs, I think people already know. They've heard them in their, you know, in, in the car over the years, and we've had people singing along. And that it just brings me so much joy to know that people feel comfortable not only coming back to live theater, but that they completely feel a connection to what's going on on stage. Yeah, I think about songs like Don't Walk Away and Suddenly. Which numbers are you most excited for audiences to experience? Well, of course, Xanadu is the big finale, and we have several surprises that happen throughout it. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the show goes on. which is a duet between Kira and Sunny. I think it's just such a beautiful song and where it comes in in the show, it's really poignant. And I think the opening number, I'm Alive, if anyone's familiar with the original movie. early 80s special effects and not that we tried to emulate that but this is a production that we've incorporated projections with in the set design as well which is something that we just started exploring before the pandemic and so we really for the whole show we wanted to lean into that we we understand what the movie is we understand what the play is and so we're going to have projections of stars behind people while they're dancing in these wildly colored costumes and things like that. So I think that the music, the choreography, the costumes, everything, I just hope that it is a, a bright spot in people's lives while we're still dealing with the pandemic and with social unrest and political upheaval, everything in the world. Let's just all try and find a little bit of Xanadu for a couple of hours. Paul Conroy, founder and artistic director of Outfront Theater, with Susan Reed, Georgia State University professor of practice in the School of Film, Media, and Theater. The Outfront Theater and GSU production of Xanadu runs through November 14th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, the next in our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring metal artist Corinna Sephora. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. I'm Karina Sephora. I'm a metal sculptor and mixed media artist. I specialize in blacksmithing and working with metal. I utilize repetitious imagery of trees, ladders, nautical and celestial atmospheres to explore emotion, memory, and ritual. These references to the natural world also convey loss and transformation and an attempt to bring order while embracing the chaotic. My first beginning start with any metal work was when I was about five years old and my father was always building something and I would follow him out to the workshop and help out. I probably got in the way more than I helped, to tell you the honest truth. But I had my own welding helmet and I called welding the electric lightning. I had a second father and he was a boat builder. So there were always boats being built around and my grandfather was a sea captain. So there were oftentimes sea voyages as a young child. Uh, My family was from New York City, but I grew up in rural New Hampshire. The smallest property we lived on was 42 acres. So there was a lot of time playing in the fields, in the forest. My favorite game was to make little boats out of leaves and natural objects that I found and float them down the water. I moved to Atlanta in 1996, and I moved here after I graduated from Massachusetts College of Art in Boston. I thought I was going to live here for two years and then move to the West Coast. Although I feel my heart is oftentimes on those uh, beautiful coastal lands, there's something where I've, I've put my roots in here in Atlanta and have called it home for over 25 years. There's been a lot of influences, sometimes being in a landlocked city and being a person who loves the waters has influenced me. And the people, the community here. I have grown to love the arts community and my peers. I think the art scene is one of the biggest influences for me here in Atlanta. I'm also very influenced by uh, the Cherokee and Creek people who uh, at one time walked on these lands. I recently made a sculptural piece for the city of Roswell, a sculptural bike rack, and it has the Cherokee rose, which was the the symbol, is the symbol for the state of, of Georgia. And in uh, certain tales, it says that it's the tears of the women as they were walking on the Trail of Tears, and they turned to these beautiful uh, white roses. I like to, when I have some materials, I like to use it all the way up till there's nothing left to use. And I find there's a relationship between the materials together. For instance, I recently had a lot of bronze water jet cut from a plate of steel, and the cast off I use as a template or as a stencil for a series of paintings. I'm very inspired by nature, and I live in a contemporary society where humans are doing what humans do, whether it's being kind to one another or unkind. And every once in a while, I come across an article in the news or there's something that's happening in the world, and it's very influential in what I do. Uh, For instance, There was a couple of years where I created artwork where I transformed guns into something else. Initially, a church came to me and asked me, would I transform a gun into a garden tool? 
And out of that, you know, kind of a whole world opened up in the next two years where people came to me and they wanted me to destroy and transform their guns and turn them into something else. I'm influenced by the music scene to a degree here and the, you know, the innovation that happens. Atlanta has been good to me and I have given back in many ways. I will say there's somewhat of a legacy that is left. If you believe that metal is somewhat permanent, I created a number of permanent site-specific sculptures um, in the city of Smyrna, the city of Sandy Springs, the city of Roswell, the city of Atlanta, the city of Decatur, and many outlying uh, states as well. But those are some of the, the top places that I have public works. Some of my favorite places to see art in Atlanta, of course, the High Museum. I'm a member. I've been a longtime member of the High Museum. I also love, during the pandemic, that they have these wonderful dance parties. I love movement and dance and music and people jiving to music. is just makes my heart sing. So I love the High Museum. I love the Friday nights that are there. I've oftentimes loved the art that is shown at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Georgia. My gallery is the Spalding Nicks Fine Art, and I love the art that they show. It's an interesting cross-section of contemporary artists um, from all different veins. And I have always really loved the Marsha Wood Gallery and Susan Bridges' White Space. I'm a big fan of much of the work that's shown at Sandler Hudson and, of course, um, Mason Fine Art and September Gray. Kevin Sipp is always doing something wonderful and creative in Gallery 72 with the City of Atlanta. And Mint shows some wonderful work, up-and-coming artists, kind of that spice that you don't always get in um, every other gallery. I had a solo exhibition at the Spalding Nicks Fine Art this summer, and it was a, a wonderful opportunity. Um, mixed media sculpture, predominantly um, forged bronze and forged uh, copper, forged and formed copper, um, as well as some paintings and some steel sculptures. So um, their work is the work from that show is archived on their website, um, SpaldingNicksFineArt.com. Metal artist Corinna Sephora and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Sephora and her work are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Atlanta author Shanna Miles. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Maya Angelou once said, In all the world, there is no heart for me like yours. In all the world, there is no love for you like mine. That belief is at the core of Atlanta author Shauna Miles' debut young adult novel, for all time, through time and space, the main characters, Tamar and Fayard, seem to find one another despite external factors. Miles spoke with City Lights producer Summer Evans recently over Zoom. Here's the author on the importance of talking about joy and young black love. In novels. Joy can be its own kind of, you know, revolution. It can be just as powerful as uh, protest. It can be its own kind of protest as well, because, you know, we continue to survive, we continue to thrive as Black people in America because of that joy and that laughter. And I think if we don't acknowledge the joy, the humanity of Black people, then we'll continue to be at the mercy of those who would like to marginalize and erase us or not recognize us as human because it's just kind of, we become like an object of pity on the 
low end and on the high end, we become objects for, you know, eradication. This story takes place in several different time eras, past, present, and future. Each chapter is either told from Tamar or Fayard's point of view, whether that's in the 14th century, 1920s, present day, or 23rd century. How did you come up with this idea of a love story that's reincarnated through different eras? I was writing a um, historical fiction novel and I finished it and I wanted to, and it was set in 1850s, which was right before the Civil War, right around the Fugitive Slave Act. And I wanted to explore other eras because there's a lot of focus on that particular era of American history and Black people's placement in that time, in that era. And I wanted to kind of focus on other things. So I played around with um, some characters and I just wrote some short stories, some short treatments in different kinds of eras that I thought would be interesting that don't get a lot of focus. So I had a space or a, a treatment that was in San Francisco in the 1960s during like the flower children and the Black Panthers, because they were all around at the same time. I had, you know, a treatment that was in New Orleans um, around the early eight, 19th century um, and wanted to kind of play with, you know, the free Black people, the jeunes de couleur that were there at that time. I wanted to go into different places. And then as I was doing that, I kept using the same two characters. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I kind of melded all of these, if there was a way to kind of hop back and forth or, you know, with these same people. And it just kind of organically started to kind of weave itself together. Mm -hmm. And the timelines don't just take place in America. Like you were saying, we're transported to Mali, like in West Africa in the 1300s and even space. How did you come up with those locations on top of the ones that are in America from the 1920s and present day? Um, because I wanted to focus on like the diaspora of, you know, Black people. We're not just Black people in America, you know, as uh, descendants of Africans uh, who were brought here, you know, against our will. We didn't always exist here in, in, this, in this space. And there's a lot to be even explored in that. You know, there's, you know, we talk about, you know, Black people in America, but you know, America's not that old, you know, you know, so like if you wanted to, to, you could do a lot and some really cool stuff where you focused on, you know, the black people who escaped to Mexico or, you know, or the black people who, you know, lived in Spanish Florida before it was, you know, purchased and, you know, I'm putting that in quotes, purchased or, you know, given up by the Spanish to become a colony. All of that stuff is super fun to kind of dig into if you like, if you like history. Mm -hmm. to kind of oh, see yeah. where are all the different peoples and where do all they go? You know, if you're leaving from, you know, West Africa in the 1600, 1700, well, where do you go? You could go a lot of different places. You could end up in Brazil. You could end up here. You could, you know, eventually end up in Canada. You, you know, like we spread out. We're not just in one place. Mm-hmm. Man, it sounds like you had a lot of locations to choose from in your research. Yes. <laughs> it was fun. How did you imagine the future of, you know, the 23rd century? How did you come up with that idea? I wanted to kind of hop, you know, in, in, in lifetimes. I wanted there to be kind of a looping back. So I had to kind of, you know, pull it out, tease it out a little bit and go further and um, I love science fiction as much as I love history to kind of, you know, to think about, you know, how we lived in the past. It's also fun to think about how we might live in the future. How will politics evolve? How will, you know, our exploration evolve? Will, because we've learned that, or we think we've learned that colonialism isn't necessarily uh, conducive to um you know, stable environments, but that's for right now. Maybe we forget all of that and we repeat history and we, you know, get arrogant and try to colonize other planets and what that looks like and, you know, and how will we eat and, and all of that kind of stuff. That's fun to think about. It's another way to like, you know, exercise those creative, that creativity in those muscles. Yeah. I really enjoyed that science fiction kind of dabbled in there. It was unexpected and very interesting. So let's go back to present day. In the book, you mentioned the pandemic and some post-quarantine. Tamar, which is the main character, is sick with a terrible cough, and she says it's a gift from the pandemic. Is this 
present day happening years after the COVID-19 outbreak or within the next year after? Well, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be a recent, you know, a near future or far future, because what we know about the long haulers right now is so little, you know, people are still getting infected and there are some people who are still sick and there are people who are dealing with the after effects of the, of COVID where they're not necessarily contagious anymore but they've got these horrible debilitating problems like their lungs are ravaged or they need, you know, transplants or they're on oxygen. And I was thinking about how are we going to acknowledge the pandemic without being set in the pandemic? Because there's so much that we are dealing with right now. And a lot of writers were kind of thinking about like, do we even talk about it? But it's been so long and it's been so, you know, all encompassing. I don't think you can ignore it. You have to acknowledge it in some some way, shape, or form. Right. It's a part of our history, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Like it's it's a footnote in America's history, well, in the world's history. So, how do these timelines interconnect with each of the characters' storylines? I wanted there to be, if you notice that there are some things about each of the characters that are the same, but their personalities, and I think this will happen with all of us. If we were reincarnated or if we lived in different eras, even if we lived in different places in America at the same time, you have to not change how you are, but your personality and how you relate to the world shifts a bit. So how men and women relate, how teenagers are treated will change depending on where and when they are. So they, for Tamar, for example, she has a love of music. Um, So she is a um, musician and a slave in 14th century Africa. And in the present day, she used to be in a school band. In the future, there is a drum machine that triggers bombs. These are all things that she ends up being drawn to with probably no real understanding as to why she's drawn to it, but how that love of music manifests is entirely dependent upon where and when she is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because each of the timelines that personality stays the same in the fact that she loves music and Fayard is kind of like a hustler, but mm-hmm. like their family dynamics and friends and the environments change. Why was it important for you to at least keep those two characteristics the same in each timeline for those characters? I didn't want it to be disjointed. So when you, cause we do a lot of jumping though, the book is not linear. You know, we go back and forth from different eras at different times. And while, you know, the the pocket stories, you know, go from the beginning of what, you know, the meet cute till, you know, to the end of their their time together, that's linear. But where we are in the book can be or where we are with them jumps back and forth. And for you to have some sort of connection to them, they had to have something the same. So they're not going to talk the same or speak the same to each other because the way that we speak looks, you know, like we don't use jive turkey anymore. You know? <laughs> the slang's different. Because mm-hmm. it's different. We don't mm-hmm. speak to people the same way, even, you know, 30 years, 40 years apart. So if you're talking about hundreds of years apart, the way that you would speak to someone be, would be different. So you have to have something that feels the same for you to understand that this is the, the same person. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm producer Summer Evans speaking with Atlanta author Shayna Miles. We've been discussing her new young adult novel, For All Time. And the differences that you touch upon in the book when you go between timelines, you also talk about the moments of racism. Like you said, Tamar is a slave in the 14th century, and the racism that fared in her experience on the train in the 1920s when they're going down to South Carolina and also some of the sexism that she experiences. Why was it important for you to mention that in this love story? Because I do feel like there's a, a, a twinge of realism that needs to be there. I like fantasy. I like things to be fantastical. I like when there's just a twist to reality where there's some magic or there's something that you know we haven't really developed yet for science fiction, that's fun. But I do like other things to kind of be rooted in real, in the real reality. It is 
more fantastical to me for you to create a world where there is no racism and sexism and try to tell a story and have someone relate to it than, you know, for there to be witches. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, that that feels, you know, more fantastic to me. And if it takes me out of the story, if there, if those things are not there, because those things happen every day. And I think some people like to ignore them. I'm not one of those people. I, I, I know people like that who would rather give everyone and everything the benefit of the doubt. And um, I've just not been able to, to live like that. So I don't write like that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned both those things. You mentioned the real with the racism, but you also mentioned the psychic that Tamar goes to in order to help uh, figure out how long she has to live, you know? So you have both those elements in there. So I read that you consider yourself a dyed-in-the-wool Southern girl. Yes. (laughs) You live in Atlanta now. And how do you interweave your Southern roots into this novel? I like, you know, this isn't my first novel. It's actually my sixth. This is just the first one that um, was that was actually, you know, able to get published. And, you know, that's normal of, of, of writers where, you know, everything you write isn't going to get published. But everything I write is going to be set in the South because it's just so, so much part of who I am and how people relate to each other and the food that we eat and how we, you know, experience the seasons and church culture and food culture. It's such a specific kind of living. And I feel that it doesn't get celebrated enough. Sometimes I feel in the larger media, popular media, it can be looked at as backwoods or disrespected, you know, because it's slower or whatever, just not given its due. And so I like to do always, you know, celebrate the people and the place. I definitely appreciated it being a Southern girl, especially when one of her favorite foods was a chili dog with extra mustard. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so delicious, especially one yeah. from the varsity. <laughs> Yes, during, and you know, this, and certain things that I think that, you know, I'm from South Carolina, you know, so in a lot of my books, there's always like a Carolina game going on somewhere. And that's a big thing, you know, <laughs> you know, here there would be, you know, like a Georgia Tech game or a Georgia Bulldogs game. You cannot ignore those things. If you're going to be talking about the place, that is going to come up at some point. If it's Saturday, it's college football day, which means <laughs> yeah. you want to come across somebody in a Bulldogs hat, in a Gamecock hat trying to find some place to wait to watch the game. Yeah. Yeah. And can you talk about some of the commonalities you have with the main character, Tamar? You know, I think all of my characters have a little bit of me in them, but they evolve on their own as I try to kind of place them in a, in a certain situation. I think she's a lot more ambitious than I am, a, you know, got a little bit more wanderlust than I do. She kind of makes choices where she can run away where she can you know expand herself and I like to be rooted you know (laughs) she loves very deeply though so I guess we have that in common but other than that she's her own person she's a little bit of a rebel yeah and how would you describe Fayard? Fayard is you know one of those soft-hearted boys and I wanted to write a care a black boy character who loved deeply I think that you don't see that too often with boys period where they're allowed to just be fully in love um but you know I've experienced that. And then as a high school librarian, I've seen that. I've seen my 15-year-old, 16-year-old students <laughs> devastated because their girlfriend moved away. <laughs> Inconsolable, you know, and you don't get to see that, you know, and I wanted him to just really be all in with her. But I also wanted him to be kind of charming and kind of a flirt. And you'll see that he's very affable. And I wanted that as well to be part of his personality. Although this book is centered on two Black characters, and there are a lot of other Black uh, side characters within the story, how is this novel relatable to all audiences? For one, there's always going to be something that you can relate to. Like, you know, there the Black experience is going to have its unique touch points, but any Southern girl is going to be able to relate to Tamar trying to 
figure out how to to get around or the things that she's in, in you know interested in while she's in the present day you know any southern girl or any girl in in general will be able to connect with her wanting a boyfriend but not wanting to call him her boyfriend because then she'll be like his girlfriend and do I want to want that label but I really really like him <laughs> you know like that <laughs> that is a universal <laughs> type of relation and the same thing with fair like he doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life just yet and he's kind of trying to figure it out but he really likes this girl and he really you know you know wants to be bombastic about it and there's something fun and relatable about that you know the fact that they're black kids is part of it but it doesn't necessarily you know color everything about their every day Mm -hmm. do you feel like there are specific things that you wanted to touch upon that's from the black experience I I know that we had talked about the racism thing but any of the lighthearted stuff that is maybe catered towards the Black audience? I think just the way that they relate to their families, but I also think that's just universal. Like the way that, you know, we have connections in the South, I think are universal. We have a lot more, that's the thing that we don't talk about a lot in general. You know, I feel that the politics and stuff separates us, the Black and white, which is also social construct anyway. If y'all were just to say, hey, I'm going to go see my grandma on Sunday and she's going to make me some chicken and biscuits after church. If that's all I wrote down on a piece of paper, you would be hard pressed to be able to say, who you know, who are we talking about? You know what I'm saying? You know, or, you know, all of my aunts and my uncles are going to have a cookout on Saturday and we're going to watch the game. You know what I mean? Like that's just how we relate here. And what's the specifics about, you know, the, the black and white experience make come down to very tiny, tiny things. If we're going to be in the same place, you know, like what church we go to may be different, but some of the slang a little bit. Yeah. The slang that we use, or maybe the type of seasoning that we put on the chicken when we put, when we make our beer chicken, but we're still making beer chicken on on a barrel. (laughs) On a barrel barbecue grill at four o'clock on a Saturday, <laughs> that is the same, you know, those things don't really, you know, make that much of a difference, you know? So there, there are some things that'll be unique. Like when I decided on where to go for her flashbacks, that's specific to where we come from. So I'm going back to Mali instead of going back to 13th century Ireland. So the where we go might be different, but the experience of, you know, falling in love with a noble boy, which Fayard is in that era, you know, like he's the son of a traveling, a noble in a king's retinue, you know, that's been done before. It just hasn't been done in that place. Right. Ultimately, love transcends time and place for these two characters, Tamar and Fayard. Is this novel your definition on what it means to have a soulmate? Because, and I'm not going to give away the ending, they are connected and they find each other in all of their lifetimes. And I feel like if, you know, you believe in soulmates that, you know, that would be the truth, how they find each other, where they're living or, you know, what situations they may be in may be different and whether or not, you know, it's going to be easy for them to really realize their love that may be different, but the fact that they connect to each other in all of these lifetimes is, you know, an indisputable fact. And I like that idea. Atlanta author Shana Miles speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Miles' debut young adult novel is For All Time. More information is available on our website wabe.org slash city lights. The Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta presents Beethoven and Big Band tomorrow evening in Emerson Hall at Emory Schwartz Center. The concert features one of Beethoven's loveliest works, the Archduke Trio, played by pianist Will Ransom, violinist Helen Kim, and cellist Sheree Kruger. 
The second half of the program features Joe Granston's big band with jazz classics and new tunes. Granston is also offering a live public master class Saturday morning at 10 in the Schwartz Center and on Zoom. Concert tickets are free with reservations online. Attendees for the concert are required to show proof of vaccination and wear a mask while at the concert and the master class. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., we usher in Native American History Month as Jeffrey Richmond Mole and Carl Davis tell us about the Georgia Museum of Art's new exhibition, Collective Impressions, Modern Native American Printmakers. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.